Good morning, how we doing? Good? Maybe I should preach up here. Would this be better? Would a couple of you grab that stage? I'm just kidding. But you can move closer, it's okay. Glad you're here. Grab your Bibles, we're going to jump back into 1 Timothy. We're hitting chapter 6. There are two verses today, and only two. And these two verses pack a punch. So I want you to get ready. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Thanks again for being here. If you're watching on the live stream, we welcome you here. We're glad that you can stay connected. If you're not able to be here, whether you're sick or traveling, I know Mike and Amy Zanakis are in Florida. He's getting some treatments there. I've been getting updates from them as we've been praying for him this week. And um, God's doing some really cool stuff in some of the ailments that he has. And so those of you that know about that, continue to pray. And uh, again, we're glad that you're here, and we hope that this is a place where you can connect and grow in community. We've looked at uh, 1 Timothy, and the last few weeks I've kind of given you a direct idea or basic idea of what Paul is doing as he encourages Timothy to lead the church in Ephesus. And the challenge that he put forth is how you see people is how you treat people. We talked about how you treat older people as your father, younger people as your, your daughter or brother or sister, or, or how you see people is how you treat people. We talked about how Paul was directing Timothy to lead the elders and uh, gave specific direction from that. And then he jumps into the last group in regards to how you see people and how you treat people. And, and what I want to say as we jump into this is that the gospel changes the way you look. You see, how you see people is how you treat people. Why? Because the gospel changes the way you look. There's no way around it. I met Robert once. I've seen him speak at these massive conferences with hundreds and thousands of people twice. He's a dynamic communicator. As a matter of fact, um, I called his personal cell once. He's written a couple of books. And Heidi and Sidney and I have been, during SMI, reading one of those books and listening to how he does life. It's just amazing. And he put his cell number in the, his personal cell. I didn't believe it. I was like, no way. So I called it. And he talked to me. I would like to say that we had a conversation, but I didn't know what to say when he answered. I was just like, ugh, ugh, uh. And then he hangs up. It's like, darn it. He's a lawyer. He's an adjunct professor. He's an honorary consul to the country of Uganda. It's been going for two decades. I didn't know this till the, about three or four years ago. And he's done some amazing, he loves Jesus. And the love of God slammed into his heart and it just changed him. He's got schools in Uganda and other countries that are helping children. He's doing amazing work. In one of his early trips, he learned of a major problem in the country of Uganda. And when I read about this and listened to it, I thought, wait, no, that, this can't be true. This sounds like something a hundred years ago, not today, but it's true. It's a modern problem, a current cultural issue in the country of Uganda. 
It's the power that witch doctors have in the culture. They hold sway. And they do uh, voodoo and all kinds of crazy, wicked things to warn off bad luck and evil spirits. One of the most wicked things they do is that they abduct children and they sacrifice them. It's horrible. Robert finds out about this and he begins to, as a lawyer, develop relationships. He develops a relationship with the number two judge, the number two guy in power in Uganda. Just walks into his office. (laughs) Hey, I'd like to help. I'm a lawyer. What can I do? He's back in San Diego and he hears that a child named Charlie was abducted by a witch doctor. He was dismembered and then left for dead up north in the middle of nowhere. But Charlie survived. You see, when Robert started talking to the justice, he found out that never in the history of Uganda had a witch doctor been charged for his crimes because the children never survived. They didn't have a witness. And when Robert hears that this child survives, he jumps on a plane and he goes all the way to Uganda to meet this boy who was eight years old. It's, it's unbelievable. And they find out that this witch doctor did this. And they find the witch doctor. And Charlie, this eight-year-old boy, brave boy, in a lineup identifies Kabi, the witch doctor. And the whole thing goes to trial. And for the first time in Ugandan history, about five, six years ago or so, the first witch doctor in Ugandan history was charged This changes a culture. It's unbelievable. Kabi was found guilty and sent to prison for life. Robert takes Charlie home to the United States and adopts him. Finds the best surgeon in the world to put Charlie back together and make him whole. It's amazing. Here's this boy that was afflicted beyond what you and I could ever imagine in a way that we think was a a problem a hundred years ago. It is still alive today, but it is being changed, radically being changed by this one little boy. I don't know your affliction. I know that you have it. We all do that there's struggles in regards to our families and relationships, that there could be struggles with health, hard times at work. I mean, life is messy. And I don't know your personal situation, but I know that in some way, shape, or form, we all experience affliction. And in these two verses, Paul is writing to Timothy and teaching this young pastor how to lead people in his congregation, the church in Ephesus, who are being afflicted. And specifically, he's writing in regards to slavery in the Greco-Roman world. It's a problem. Grab your Bibles and let's start reading. 1 Timothy 6, verse 1. Paul says this. 
let all who are under the yoke of bondservant. This word bondservant is the Greek word doulos. It means slave. Let everybody who is a slave, they're under the yoke of slavery. That term is given to uh, define ox or cattle who have been tied up or yoked to each other to work. They're not free. Let everyone, Paul is telling Timothy to stand up in front of the congregation in Ephesus and say to the slaves, you who are slaves, regard your own masters worthy of all honor. What in the world is Paul's problem? Timothy's got to be thinking, uh, what did you just say? Are you kidding me? Let me just be real clear as we look at this. Slavery, one human being owning another human being, is wrong. It is unbiblical. There's no justification ever. It still goes on to this day, this stuff of one person owning another person, and it's wrong. Why in the world isn't Paul saying that? It's an important question. Matter of fact, this verse has caused some problems in American history. This single verse. Christians have used this verse to justify owning another person in our history. It's wrong. No matter what, and I'm going to explain in just a second, but I just want to be really clear so that there's no misunderstanding on where I stand in regards to proclaiming to you God's sovereign will and man's disobedience in regards to one person owning another person. Let's just be as clear as I can. It's wrong. It's wicked. It's demonic. It's satanic. Period. But we've got to look at this verse to understand why Paul didn't abolish it verbally in this section. He did in 1 Timothy 1.10. He did. He said it's wrong for a person to steal another person and own him. 1 Timothy 1.10. Five, six weeks ago. It was there. Why isn't he here? See, there's a difference. And you need to look at this verse in the context or through the lens of Greco-Roman culture. Okay? And as I say this, I continue to be clear, I'm not advocating that it's okay for one person to own another person. It's wrong. But if you look at this verse, like many have, especially during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln looked at it differently. He did. Matter of fact, when I was in Washington, D.C., I went to the Bible Museum. I went to the Bible's influence in American history and they had a whole section on the Civil War. Handwritten letter from Abraham Lincoln that said this. How is it that two different groups of people can be praying? His hand, I'm reading the letter. How is it that two different people can be fighting over the same issue while reading the same scripture and praying to the same God. It's crazy. But you can't look at this verse through the lens of American history. You can't. There's a difference between slavery in the Roman world, it was wrong, and slavery in our culture, it was wrong. But they were different. In the Roman Empire, slaves had become a part of the state. 
It was a sponsored institution. There were legal codes. There was a sophisticated economic support. And there were complex social customs. Slaves were abused. They were. However, it wasn't racism. There, it wasn't a racist issue. It wasn't one ethnic type of people. Wiedemann, in his work on Greek and Roman slavery, said this, in stark contrast to the new world slavery that developed in the 17th to 20th century, Greco-Roman slavery functioned as a process rather than a permanent condition. As a temporary phase of life, by means to which an outsider could obtain a, quote, place in the society. The issue of slavery under the rule of the Roman Empire presented a huge, thorny theological issue for the Apostle Paul. Slavery had become a centerpiece to Roman culture both inside the capital and throughout the empire. Because slaves were not chosen based on a race, they were looked at as indistinguishable from other people. There wasn't a separation. But what that means is that everybody mixed and mingled, and just by looking at a person, you couldn't identify that they were a slave. The social status and class didn't allow for that. There was still abuse, but there was a social integration, not a social isolation. It is believed there were more than 50 million slaves in the Roman Empire, over a third in the city of Rome. Roman law considered slaves to be property. That's wrong. A slave could be owned and traded. And the slave couldn't do anything without permission. Couldn't get married, couldn't own property, couldn't go to court without permission from their owner. However, slaves could own property. Which, if they did own, they legally controlled free from their master. Their master could not control them to control their property. Some even acquired their own slaves, which they had the right to sell or to do what they wanted. They could accumulate wealth, and they could use that wealth to purchase their freedom. As a matter of fact, many believed to find their freedom around the age of 30, where they had enough money to buy their freedom from their master and be free. And it was socially acceptable Legally, slaves occupied a specific status in the Roman society, and it was social status. It's, it's different than Western slavery. I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, I just, I just want you to understand it's, it's wrong, but there's a difference. And the difference doesn't make it acceptable in God's eyes or okay, no. But if we look at this scripture 
through our lens, we miss what God is doing here and what the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy. You see, the slaves could get very high in society. Household slaves served not just as cooks and cleaners and personal attendants, but also as tutors of all persons of all age, physicians, nurses, close companions to their masters, even managers of the household, including finance. In the business world, slaves were not just manual labor. They were managers of estates, shops. They were captain of ships, as well as sailmen. I'm sorry, salesmen. And they could make contracts as contracting agents. In civil service, they didn't just clean up the streets. They were administrators of funds and executives that could make decisions. There were four primary ways in the Roman culture that a person became a slave. Let me just list these for you real quick, and we're going to jump back into the scriptures. First one is kidnap or capture. It's wrong. Paul lists this kind again of enslavement as a violation and a sin. He equates it in 1 Timothy 1.10, equivalent to homosexuality and perjury and lying and immorality. It's wrong to, to steal somebody else. The second way was by birth, and this was probably the most common way that a person became a slave. In Paul's time, birth... by an individual who's owned by a slave, automatically made that person property of the master. Another one was self-sale. And it was extremely common for escaping in the Roman world hardship and poverty. A person would sell themselves into slavery they would voluntarily choose this because they knew that they would learn a skill. They would climb the social ladder. That they would earn citizenship and eventually they could be released. Many believe this had been the path chosen by Erastus in Romans 16 when he became the city manager of Corinth. And a fourth way was abandonment. Common method of dealing with an unwanted pregnancy in the Roman world was called exposure. Where a mother would take her child into the middle of nowhere, deliver the baby, and leave the baby exposed to die. And if that baby was found by somebody, it was common law and it, um, accepted that that baby would then be raised to be a slave. So we have a problem in the city of Ephesus, in the church. And it's not just Ephesus, it's the whole region. You had this church with wealth and poverty mingling together. Men and women sat and worshipped together. The gospel had been proclaimed. Lives were being changed. So you had slave owner and slave working together. Worshipping together. This is the backdrop.
it still doesn't answer the question, why didn't Paul just speak up? Why didn't he just say, hey, this isn't right? Well, I think there are several answers, but I, I want to speak to what's going on right here in this text. And as I've already said, Paul does speak out against it, and the scriptures speak out against slavery. This is not a contradiction. Paul understands that the gospel changes the way you look. He believes the gospel because it has changed him. He went from being an activist violently against Christians because they were blaspheming, blasphemers to a person who received the gospel and it changed the way he looked. He understand and understood that his activism against what he believed was wrong in regards to God, didn't change anything. It only made it worse, and Christianity flourished. He could see that. But not only that, his eyes were opened. Paul chooses, I believe, a profoundly gospel-centered approach to a major ungodly, wicked issue. It's so brilliant, it can only come from God. His desire and Paul's calling was to advance the gospel by means of changing the world. Activism can reform a society temporarily, but only the gospel can change hearts and minds permanently. Begin with transformation of hearts, and the results will speak for themselves. And so he challenges Timothy with a very hard message, with the hopes of the gospel changing hearts, and he says this, and it is here as clear as I can make it. Please see it. Let all who are under the yoke of bondservant regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching of God may not be reviled. There it is. He's speaking to Christians who are slaves in the church who are owned by people most likely outside of the church so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. The name of God, Theos, sovereign Lord and master. It's like, that's your earthly master, but your heavenly master. He trumps everything. Show honor to the outsider. So that the sovereign Lord and a teaching, his teaching, loving Savior, that's the gospel, will not be reviled. Paul has a gospel mindset. It's not just a decision that somebody makes for Paul. The transformation isn't just based on a decision. The transformation is also based, he experienced this himself, on complete dedication. That the transformation of his heart gave him the ability to decide to surrender and die to himself and follow his Lord and Master and then dedicate his whole life. So many of us get the decision part, we just don't get the dedication part. It's like Christianity is the diving board. We make this decision. I use this 
couple weeks ago, we make the decision to be followers of Christ and we jump off the board into the world or the pool of the world and nothing changes. That's not the gospel. It's decision. It's the board and the new pool you swim in. Because the gospel changes the way you look. And so in this first verse, this is what Paul is saying. The gospel changes the way slaves look at their unbelieving masters. A non-believing master would have been more, it would have been more likely that they would have been abusive and harsh. And in the mind of the average person, all of us, I'm like this, my kids are like this, when we are afflicted or abused by somebody else, we justify our disrespect, we justify that this isn't right, and so we treat the other, it's this old adage, what your parents say, my parents say, two wrongs don't make it right. Would you just be quiet? I'm being wronged right now. And what Paul is saying is, no, the gospel changes everything. Changes the way you look at your non-believing master who is afflicting you. For a believing slave to rebel against an unsaved master would bring disgrace to the gospel. That behavior of disrespect doesn't change another person. It digs their heels in. I mean, all throughout Scripture, we see how you're supposed to treat those who afflict you. Pray for them. Forgive them. Love them. And all throughout Scripture, we see unbelievers becoming believers because of the radical change in person's heart. And they want it. Verse 2, those who have believing masters, he now shifts his focus to the people in his congregation who are believers, slaves, and their masters are believers. This is another issue. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are now brothers. How you see people is how you treat people. Remember that? Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and they're beloved. The gospel changes the way, verse 2, slaves look at their believing masters. The danger here is that the Christian slave might take advantage of his master because they're both slaves. He might say, my master is my brother. Since we are equal, he has no right to tell me what to do. But this attitude would only create serious problems within the home and within the churches. It's right. The slave has the right to say that. But it doesn't give him the right to disrespect authority. See, now it's an authority issue. The slave who's a believer and has a believing master can't use that violation for a justification to rebel and not work hard and not do his best for his brother. The same argument is being used against him. You know, we're equals now. You can't tell me what to do. And Paul says, no, that's not right. You can't do that because if you're brothers, then you want to help your brother out. You want to help him succeed because then you succeed. Do you understand 
the context behind this, that Paul views everything differently because of the gospel. See, I'm not saying the gospel changed the way you look, as in how you dress, it may, or how you act, it may. The gospel changes the way you look at the world. You ever had Maui gyms? Put these things on, it's like, you go from standard vision to HD. <laughs> now, I may look cool, right? But you guys look amazing. It changes the way you look. It changes the way you look at God. You see, the gospel changes the way you look at God because it makes God move from this distant, just, wrathful, angry God to this loving Father. It changes the way you love your neighbor and you look at your neighbor. The gospel changes this because you see souls. You see the beloved. You see family. You don't just see people. The gospel changes the way you look at your neighbor. But here's the big one. The gospel changes the way you look at your enemy, the person afflicting you. You can't look at your enemy the same way. Remember Robert I was telling you about? It felt so good. It felt so good. Justice was served. And he put his enemy, the most wicked person, Kabi, the witch doctor, in prison, in the worst, one of the worst prisons in the world. He brings this boy back and he takes the boy to Disneyland. But he felt a hole in his heart. His exact words were this. It's real easy. I, I'm just struggling. It's real easy for me to agree with Jesus. I can agree with him. It's really, really hard for me to obey him. Love God, okay. Love, love my neighbor, okay. Love my enemy, no. No, Cobby became my enemy, these words, when he hurt Charlie. But Robert loves God. The gospel's changing his heart. So he gets on a plane. He flies to Uganda. He calls the warden when he gets there and says, I want to come visit Kabi. And the warden says, no way. Nobody's coming to see that guy. No. He says, I'm the honorary consul of Uganda. Pause on the phone. Warden says, okay. <laughs> he goes and he sits down with this old man witch doctor who's going to die in prison. Bloodshot red eyes. And he begins to talk to him. Kabi says his childhood was horrible. He talks about how hard it was to be the son of a witch doctor. I know how hard it is to be the son of a pastor. Witch doctor. I don't know. And they chat about Charlie, about Jesus. They chat about love. And then Cobby says to Robert, I just, I just want one thing in my life. I'm going to die here. I just, I got to find one thing. 
I, I want forgiveness. Robert said in that moment, he didn't see a witch doctor who sacrificed children. He didn't see an enemy who hurt Charlie. His words, I saw a thief on the cross asking for forgiveness. Wow. Sunroof Church, I'm the thief on the cross looking for forgiveness. I didn't kill children in the woods, but my sins are equal to the witch doctor. The scriptures say you violate one sin, you're guilty of the whole law. And God's grace came to rescue every single one of us. And when we receive God's grace, we don't justify anymore. We recognize I didn't earn the grace, neither did the witch doctor, but God came to love and restore. And those who were willing to say, I want forgiveness, they receive it. And if it's true forgiveness and repentance, it changes the way you look on the inside and on the outside. Robert has a school for witch doctors. He's changing the culture. Thousands come to his school and this, the country endorses this school. Witch doctors can't read he brings them in and he educates them and teaches them how to read. And do you know they only have two textbooks? The Bible and Love Does by Bob Goff. Robert Goff. And they graduate. In some way, shape, or form, we are all afflicted or we're going to experience affliction. And when that comes, we have a different hope because of the gospel. Believing the gospel doesn't mean there's not going to be abuse, whether at work or at home. It doesn't mean that you're going to be mistreated in the world. Believing the gospel just gives you a different hope. And it gives you a different grace in regards to those relationships around you. Change the way you look at God. Change the way you look at your neighbors. Change the way you look at your enemies. And this is something you and I can't do without help. This is why Jesus said, I'm going to help you. I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to put my spirit in you. Love your enemies? <laughs> you can't do that. Pray for those who persecute you? Nah, your sin nature is really strong, but greater is he that is in you. And so I'm going to invite you. Whatever your situation is, I don't know. Maybe you don't have one. Maybe you know somebody that does. I'm going to invite you for the next few minutes to spend time inviting the Holy Spirit to change your heart, change the way you look at your circumstance, your situation, the people. I know in this room right here, there's affliction. There's disconnection in families and relationships right here in this room. We can't do this. That our community here must have restoration and grace. 
I personally have had disconnects that I've had to render in regards to people and friends here at Sun River Church. We all have to do this, and I can't do it by myself, and neither can you. We have to invite the Holy Spirit to change the way we look, and he will. I guarantee you. He's done it for me in the last two months in many ways. And so we're going to pray. We're going to go into a time of prayer. I'm going to start, and then we're going to invite you to join in in the quietness of your heart. There are several people who've been asked to pray for specific things, and they've been given microphones, and they're going to pray. And then in the pause and in the quiet, I'm going to invite you in your own heart and mind to seek the power of the Holy Spirit through prayer and ask him to open your eyes and help you see people and circumstances and affliction the way that God desires. Because the Apostle Paul understands when the gospel comes into your heart, it changes the way you see. And if he changes your heart, you will change the community and the wickedness all around you. Let's pray. God, we love you and we cannot do what you ask us to do in regards to grace and forgiveness to those who've hurt us without help. Even in our own families, it's hard to, uh, for us to extend grace and forgiveness. We need you to open our eyes to the truth of your gospel and how much you loved us even though we don't deserve it so we can extend through the power of your Holy Spirit, the same grace to others. And through that obedience, we don't just agree with you, we're obedient to you. And when we obey you, Lord, I know that you restore and you transform hearts, churches, communities, and the world. And Lord, we thank you for being faithful to do this. May we seek you in this place right now so that you can change us. In your name we pray.